J Cut, and this is the K Cut. I'm Rachel, and I'm here with my co-hosts. I write for Films Fatal, and I am deep into Oscar season, so please do not attempt to socialize with me because my brain is atrophied. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. And yeah, I haven't really gotten started yet. I've seen two flicks out of every single nominee, so I'm going to do what I did the past couple of years and just speed run it all. How? My name is... <laughs> Good luck. My name is Andreas. Um, I'm a couple of features away from completing all of the nominees. God help me. My, my uh, atrophy doesn't even begin to describe it. I'm like already gone. I'm like <laughs> I'm on the other side. I've break it. I've broken through to the parallel dimension, a la everything everywhere all at once. So I have reached Nirvana. You mean the parallel dimension where all the films are available? Yes, yes. It's uh, simultaneously the same one where everybody lives as rocks because uh, that's like the optimal viewing environment. Nobody talks. Everything's quiet. We got the biggest screen in the universe in the canyon. It's 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 pretty chill. I uh, also love art house and international cinema and everything in between. And in case you could tell by our enthusiasm, we will be discussing all things Oscars in the near future. But for now, we're not going to be doing that. We're going to be um, actually, I believe, wrapping up our color series uh, with this uh, final episode and previous episodes, we have shared films that have reminded us of primary colors, yellow, blue, and red uh, secondary colors, green, purple, and orange. And now uh, initially I think we were going to do black, white, gray, brown, and pink. It just felt like kind of too many and not much room to discuss various things. Uh, I feel like it is doable, but at the same time we just, Kind of cut it down, because why not? So instead, we're going to be discussing uh, black, white, and pink as our final colors that we're going to go through. And hey, maybe down the road we will discuss brown, maybe we'll discuss gray, but like, I don't know. That's not important right now. We're just going to stick it to those three, and I feel like it'll be interesting because in general, even excluding gray, um, black and white is tough when it comes to colorful films, because uh, typically it's easy to gravitate towards uh, grayscale or as the public knows it, black and white cinema. Um, and I mean, those might be some of the examples that we bring up today, but otherwise in general, it's like what films are predominantly black? What ones are predominantly white, but an even bigger question, what's predominantly pink. I mean, it's not as frequently used as you would think. So I'm excited to see what we wind up with. So why don't we get started with, Let's get started with the negative. Let's go dark. Let's just think of the blackest, bleakest films that we can think of. Or they might not even be bleak. They could be very optimistic. They just happen to be the darkest color that there is. So what films remind us of the color or the lack, the absence of color? Black. Who wants to go first? Me, me. Okay, what is your film that is Obsidian? I picked a black and white film, even though we technically weren't supposed to, but that is because I want to shine a spotlight on the work of Lotte Reiniger, who is a, or she was a German animator who pioneered a lot of cartoon films in the 20s and early 30s. And the film I'm using as an example is Harlequin. It's a short I did for the world of movies, but I've seen a few of her films by now. And... She worked exclusively with Silhouette, and she drew on a lot of tropes of things like Commedia dell'arte, and um, 
it's a really unique form of art that she made. It works with shadow. There are folk tales and fairy tales in it. It's just a really neat body of work that's really kind of ignored. So I would say go check it out. Uh, what's the name of this film again? Harlequin. Uh, it's a short and it's kind of a story, a fairy tale of a prince and things like that. Oh, actually, yeah, I think I do know the one. This is, yeah, it's a really good one because, um, and it's not even that from that long ago. You said it's the black and white one? It's from 1930. 1930, okay. I'm thinking of a different one then. Uh, mm-hmm. If anyone's seen the Harry Potter chance, movie like, where they tell the tale of the three brothers, that was very heavily based on her style, except it wasn't black and white. So you can get an idea from that. Yeah, this is, uh, I'm trying to like look this one up. I, I, okay, I don't think I've seen this one. This, this, how did you even come across this one? Criterion, where else? <laughs> I might have to look into that. That, that, uh, that sounds right up my alley. Actually, really early shorts, um, Shorts in general, I feel like, are some of the most expressionistic, experimental uh, types of cinema because a lot of these stories don't get the proper funding to be made into something a lot more fully fledged. But of course, when you're talking about early cinema, like 1913 or 1930, Mm -hmm. you said, right? Uh, Yeah, 1930, I believe. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Well, 31, sorry. Yes, uh, which uh, this might have you uh, very happy to hear this, Rachel. Apparently, your review is the first thing that comes up. Sweet. I'm famous. Cool. <laughs> That's cool. So, um, especially when it comes to that, like the end of the talkie, um, yeah, they were going from maximalist, like these long, long films, to really short because of how condensed um like audio reels were and like how little space that they had so something like this was like destined to come where it's like the end of an expressionistic era and the start of the short for like a shorter medium so uh, i'm gonna have to check this one out yeah i really recommend it for animation fans especially which i am which yeah, I but the, the the entire thing is black and white, and the black is basically all the action sets and characters. So that is what immediately jumped to mind for me. This reminds me of some other stuff. Like what was it called? I think it's called The Prince of Arabia. It's like a it's like a twenties. Oh, the Adventures of Prince Ahmed, same person. That that's the one. That's the one that I was thinking of. Yes, um, the adaptation of Aladdin, like the story of, that we know as Aladdin. Um, that one I have seen, and that was just so it is the same person. Yes. Well, that, now I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to watch this one then because this is just. I, I loved that film, so uh, this this is clearly a must. James, what about you? What is your uh, what is your black film that you know might be black and white or might be uh, based on color? Well, mine is uh, black and white except for a few splashes of color. I decided to go with Sin City by Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. Oh yeah, it's just the epitome of a dark film. So I mean, it's pretty self explanatory. It's also. Um, it's probably one of my favorite examples of early digital filmmaking too. And it's one of the films that kind of, it, it, it makes me, it's one of the examples I use on why I hate the push for photorealism in digital filmmaking, because it's just, there's such a lack of style. But with this, it's like, literally he created these comic book panels and brought them to real life, not making them super realistic, but actually making them like the comic book itself. You know, I mean, we've got people like, you know, going crazy over the new Avatar, but I'm just like, I don't, I don't care how realistic it looks. If I want realism, just shoot real people. 
but yeah, I, I also just like, I mean, it's just one of those, you know, I really love neo-noir. It's a really great example of that. And uh, it's also one of those uh, projects that uh, was always deemed unfilmable. So I always, I'm always fascinated when they take something that's like unfilmable and actually make it because it's like, oh, no, we can't actually make it. It just takes some time to make it. Also, I just think uh, I'm obviously a big fan of Robert Rodriguez, but it's like I do also kind of like Frank Miller. Mm. So I guess that helps. It was also um fun story. That's actually the project that Robert Rodriguez left the Directors Guild over. Why? Uh, because they wouldn't allow Frank Miller to be co-producer or be um, credited as co-director. That's ridiculous. There are co-directors all the time and nobody looks too closely. Uh, so there's actually specific rules on that. Really? Yes, because you have to be you have to establish yourself as a team before you can be credited as co-directors. What? Like for the Coen brothers, there's a reason why oh. individually one of them was credited as director and producer up until like 2004 okay. or something like that. It's because of those rules. Yeah, because the Daniels are both credited now for everything everywhere. That's true. I feel like it's a little different now. Yeah, well, it's like, but it also, it's like you had to establish yourself as a team in some capacity prior to that. So if you were like, had written, if you, if you had like a screenplay that got picked up and you were as a team, I think that counts as well because that happened with the Wachowskis. Okay. Because like they had done like a screenplay before they did their movie Bound, which they were credited for, and then obviously they did the Matrix, which they could be credited together. But uh, yeah, no, the, there's so many weird rules. It's like uh, what was it? Um, Quentin Tarantino wasn't a part of the guild for a long time either. Until like I think he didn't join until the Hateful Eight. George Lucas famously quit like before Star Wars was released because they made a um, a big fuss over the opening crawl. Man, the Directors Guild sounds a little picky. Yeah, the unions are really weird when it comes to credits. Hmm. And it was a different time for credits, the 70s, so. That is that is true. Uh, picky, it doesn't begin to describe it. To go back to the uh, to the film, though, it's uh, it's a great selection because I feel like it's, uh, it's very ink-heavy almost, even though it's not ink, it's obviously film. But it reminds me so much of the graphic novel and, like, just the visual aesthetic of it and... Um, I mean, it, it looks exactly as it should, and I feel like that set a really high bar, um, which I still don't think has really been matched in quite the same way. It really hasn't, but it, it's just one of those things where, you know, th- there's there's always the debate between like film and digital, but digital makes these things possible, right? Because once again, it's just a tool. It, it, you don't have to use one or the other. It's like if it works for your project, go for it. Absolutely. I feel like uh, not that we like weren't supposed to do this or anything uh but uh mine's also black and white and i unfortunately don't think anybody has seen it here and i don't blame you because uh if you haven't it's um seven and a half hours long uh, oh yes i think i know what but you i definitely mean. haven't it's at this point one of my favorite films of all time i would say especially of the 90s i think i placed it in my top five it is a film by uh, the one, the only Beatar. It's called uh, Satan Tango. I can't pronounce the Hungarian name, but in English, it uh, is directly translated to Satan's Tango. So this is, you want to talk about bleak. This is one of the bleakest things I've ever seen. And this film experiments with long shots, minimalist, um, nihilistic storytelling, Um just the uh, the bleakest depiction of Hungary that I think I've well I haven't seen much of of Hungary but like in general like 
one of the bleakest depictions of one's motherland that I think I've ever seen. Um, but it's use of dark shades and just like black doesn't begin to describe it. Like this film is like so overwhelmed by shadows. It's honestly just you know in a sick sense like breathtaking to look at there's no film that quite like looks like this one and it, yeah again it's seven and a half hours long um but just hypnotic it's not the easiest film to watch obviously it's incredibly pessimistic incredibly hairy and heavy incredibly uh full of like devastation and just misery but my goodness it places you in a trance and part of it is because of how dark and shadowy the film is does that sound like anyone's cup of tea? I say you recommend it to us both for Smorgasbord. I'm on it. Uh, I would, but then I think both of you would actually hate me. Um, if I'm not... I don't think I even have the time for that. Not- One thing that kind of bothers me about the film, it's not the film itself. It's, uh, God bless him, it's it's Tar, like the, the filmmaker. Um, he insists that you watch this in one sitting. And I'm like, hey, listen. I personally don't mind doing that. I actually couldn't, uh, not because I would refuse to. I just didn't have the time to when I watched it. So I watched it in two sittings. Um, Knowing what I know, like I would love to watch it in one sitting, but that's me. I'm a psychopath. He insists that people watch it in one sitting. So if it's ever shown in a theater, which I believe it's getting a 4K restoration and being, uh, it's traveling around the United States very soon. I I think this year, um, it's not going to have an intermission. And he refuses to let it have one. How do you expect somebody said for seven and a half hours? Wasn't it Hitchcock who said something like a film should never last longer than the capacity of the human bladder? Well, at this rate, this is like, this is like, like, like two refills of the bladder. Like it's impossible. Like for some people, like it is virtually impossible to watch this in seven and a half hours. Um, I mean, I'm I'm sick in the head. I I would easily attempt to do that, but again, that's me. Uh, I would love to watch this film again. It's not for everybody, though. Again, it's a very um, desperate experience, but uh, unlike any that I've ever seen before. But uh, instead of wallowing in and you know cynicism, why don't we look at something that might be more hopeful, uh, might be more uplifting, a ray of light, you might say. Maybe I don't know. Let's look at the films that we identify with white. So in the same way that a lot of films are like grayscale, but like, you know, dark is one thing. White is another, like not necessarily many films are like associated with like being white as a, as you know, the uh, absorption of all colors, Uh, you know, like the brightest, it's not a hue, but like shade that you can have. I don't know. So uh, maybe in the same order, Rachel, what is your film that is like, possibly the brightest well it's not exactly uplifting it's a hard movie to watch sometimes but it's big and it's epic and it takes place in the arctic of what is now canada so it is very white the scenery everything and um that is Atanajwa, the fast runner oh and it is maybe the greatest film made in canada it was the first film ever made in nuktitut and which is the language of the inuit people of the north and yeah, it was a huge success when it came out and it's still just a seminal movie. Oh my God. Like, okay. Now and there's that, snow everywhere. Now that you've said it, 
that that could very well be like the whitest film ever made. You know what? I I, I think you've got me beat. My goodness. Um, I don't know. Sure the funny thing is, the first time I saw it, it was in a film class, and there was something wrong with the hookup. So the snow was tinted green, and the people were kind of purple. So it was a strange way to watch about the first hour of the movie. Oh, uh, they didn't want to like try and fix it first and then show it. That kind of ruins it. No, although for a second, I think we all just thought that the director had made some very interesting choices. <laughs> yeah, because isn't the whole thing like it was like the first um, authentically like uh, Aboriginal run cast and crew? Uh, and ca- like, I don't think they would have had a second film if that's what they were doing was making everything green. Mm-hmm. I yeah, it was uh, definitely get a good AV hookup when you watch this film because it is very beautiful and very worth it. It's one that rides on the power of its story almost exclusively because, like, from what I can recall, it's, like, very limited set-wise. It's, like, mostly in igloos and on snow. Um, Mm -hmm. And there aren't too many characters. No. And it's around three hours, I think. So it's, like, riding entirely on, like, this mythology of the the idea that this guy's, like, a fast runner. I don't want to say too much, and I don't want to downplay the film because that sounds a little silly. It's not. It's... Really, uh, at its essence, it's like how great a film can get by just because of what it's saying and how it's saying it. Um, you don't need the biggest budget. You don't need the biggest names, special effects or anything. It's been not just by you, crowned by quite a few people. I think TIFF itself is crowned the greatest Canadian film of all time. I don't necessarily agree, but I would place it in my top 10, maybe even top five for sure. It's certainly in the conversation. We might have to recommend this to James <laughs> for the smorgasbord one of these one of these months. Um, well, three hours is a seven and a half. I can tell you that much. Um, mm-hmm. James, what about you? No more long movies. Uh, that's not going to happen, unfortunately. Have you seen a lot of these nominees this year? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, what's the deal with that? Everybody's done their three-hour opus this year, and it's like, God, guys, <laughs> get some scissors, trim it. Look, I just finished Bardo today, and I actually liked it more than I thought I would. That was still too overlong, and it was two and a half hours, and Alejandro Iñárritu trimmed it already after Venice, half an hour. So it's like, what was it like before? Anyway, sorry, going off topic. James, what is your white film? So I decided to go something just really silly. I'm going with White Chicks. I mean, in a, in a sense. It is a white film. In a sense, it's not what I was looking for, but it, it counts on a technical. You could have also put under pink. Yeah. That, oh, that's true. So the main reason I picked it wasn't just so the, the the literal sense of white, but there's a lot of conversations these days that I've been seeing on the internet on uh, what films would you be able to do today that were made back then. And White Chicks often comes up a lot because the question, hey, could you do this t- today? I mean, given like the sociopolitical landscape and a lot of people, you know, often say no. And I think even Marlon Wayne said you couldn't do it because one, like the landscape of comedy is different, but also I don't think people realize that there's a conversation that needs to be had about uh, media literacy in regards to this movie specifically, because a lot of people are, aren't aware that this is, it was intended to be a loose remake of Some Like It Hot. That's why it borrows so many elements from it, except it just kind of has a slightly different story. But also a lot of people don't realize that the reason they made this was their white girl personas were actually inspired by Paris and Nikki Hilton. That makes a lot of sense now that I, that you tell me that. Like Sean pitched to Marlon that because he thought it would be great to play them in a movie. 
And I was like, oh, it makes so much more sense out. Like when you know those two facts, I'm like, oh, and like they use, they specifically use some like it had as a reference and that convinced them that they could actually pull it off. That's why there's, you know, so many things like the classic ending moments of the movie, which they kind of did slightly different in there in regarding to, um, like the Jack London with a Terry Crews character. Like if if you know, you know, I'm not going to ruin it if you don't. Um, but yeah, it's, I just find it fascinating because every time we have these conversations, people don't realize there's more context. Like there was always like, Oh, you couldn't do blazing saddles today. And everyone's like, Oh, you're, you're clearly not understanding the intention of blazing saddles. If you're saying it can't be done. Cause like anything that parodies, anything can be done if you're doing it in the right context. I think a lot of people like to complain just cause you know, they get to sit on their high horse a little bit longer by saying stuff like this. There is some stuff that I feel like wouldn't fly today. Sure. But it's the stuff that's, hateful and doing stuff you know like having this sort of commentary if you're saying it in the right light i don't see why you can't well, yeah well and then there's always an the argument it's like oh well you couldn't do black chicks i'm like yeah because that's an intentionally offensive like premise like you can't do that in good faith like I, oh, that counter argument always pisses me off i ex- you know excuse me for swearing because it's like uh, white chicks was made because they were trying to comment on the idea of race in general. When you make it a retort to say black chicks, you're literally only saying it so you could say, why can't we literally do this to you? And I feel like that's where it gets ugly. If that was like the original idea done properly, maybe, I don't know. But oftentimes when it's like, well, why don't we get this week or why don't we get this day or whatever? It's often more or less like, a retort to belittle what's come before. I'm not saying that white chicks is like a triumph in that sort of a way, but like the re- the response is always for stupid, like stupid reasons. And I apologize for the aside, but it's true. Also, um, it's also a, a, that movie is a good reminder of how unhinged comedy in the early 2000s was. Like, there are so many movies that could only happen in the early 2000s. Like what? Um. Let's see. Uh, Freddie got fingered. Oh God! <laughs> That's one. Dude, dude, where's my car? Yeah, that could only be made then. Um, Joe Dirt. That couldn't be made now. That just it, it just wouldn't even work. It's like it's not even like not content wise, but it's like only certain silly movies could be made, or like like Little Nicky. Right. Okay. Oh, that could only be made in the early two thousand. Really, most of Adam Sandler's career at the time. <laughs> yeah. Now he only yeah. makes good films. Um. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, mine's quite different for both of yours. So I feel like white, we were like completely uh, uh, thinking on different pages, which I like. I like the, um, you know, I like the variety. So mine, mine actually could have been all three of these categories. It could have been black. It could have been pink, but it also could have been white, which is what I'm selecting it for. I love the usage of you know, of white and, you know, like a tabula rasa by Matthew Lee Batik and Darren Aronofsky's black swan, which I, again, it's, uh, it's a contrast between black and white throughout the entire film, but also the concept of pink as well. When, uh, the main character, Nina, who's like this ballerina who's, uh, naive, but really good at what she does. And she's vying for the, uh, the swan queen spot in, in an upcoming, uh, an up, upcoming presentation of it. Um, pink is used a lot as well, but like specifically white is uh, like my favorite of this 
trilogy of colors used in the film. Um, I feel like it's a representation of like purity of um, naivety um, kind of just being like, uh, again, like the perfectionist, but not somebody who's able to like let go and just enjoy what they're doing. Um, Precision, but also like sanitary. I think it's used in so many effective ways. Yeah. I can see where you're coming from with that flick. It really is a film that could fit in all those categories though. I see what you mean. But I feel like white, I mean, it's called Black Swan and it's about letting the Black Swan take over uh, when it comes to like a perfectionist and somebody who's driving themselves, you know, delirious because of their perfectionism. But uh, I just love the usage of white in this, in this film. I feel like Matthew Liberty gets, you know, I don't know if it's a hot take, probably not. Uh, I'm not sure how many people are saying this, but it's like my favorite film shot by him. I feel like it's some of his finest work to date. And part of that is how much he makes like, like the white ballet dresses or like uh, even like shining lights. Like they just like pop so much to the point that they're like almost blinding. I love it. Well, I mean, you got to think about the dude shot pie. Yeah. Think about how wild that cinematography is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's up there in his, in his uh, career as one of his finest efforts as well. Pie is really well shot. Um, but now uh, I guess I didn't select it for my pink film. Spoiler. I did. Actually, no, I didn't. Uh, we are going to hop into our last film. Uh, what films are really pink? And again, I don't think there are, there are as many as you might think off the top of your head. If you can like list 10 right off the bat right now in a matter of, like, let's even give you a minute, I'd be very impressed. Uh, I'm so, a 90s girl. This is okay. easy. <laughs> okay. So, um, like, I'm thinking like pink like throughout the entire film, but maybe you have me beat. So, uh, what what film are you thinking of Rachel well this one actually it's interesting I just set up a 90s girl because uh this is promising young woman which builds very heavily on the imagery and aesthetic and music of the late 90s early 2000s which is a very specific bubble that I guess Emerald Fennell was super into and it really works well with this awful horrible story and this contrast where all the characters are sort of surface level nice and there's this really, it's a really beautiful film that looks very cheery in most of its scenes. And this contrast is just, it makes it all the more unnerving. So I picked that because it played with my nostalgia and then stomped it into the ground. That's actually a really good pick. I completely didn't even think of that one. It doesn't really, like, it's not even like a pink pick. It's like a, at times, pastel pink because of the uh, lead character working in, uh, what is it, like a cafe? Yes. And, and she's then, got pink in her hair and Yep. And like their nurse outfit, I believe there's like a like a it's like a red, but then like I think there's also like hot pink makeup or something to counter it. Um mm. like various hues for sure. And it's not even just pink as a color, it's also pink as like the concept of girliness and this film is very girly on the outside. Oh yeah. Like, very unabashedly so. Like, I feel like that was a huge draw to it when when it first came out. It's not just that it's twisty, that it's compelling. It's, like, fully owning how girly it is. And, I like, we don't really see that enough because I feel like so many filmmakers or voices have been kind of stymied away from that, um, especially in Hollywood. But Yeah, and even female directors, I think, kind of feel a pressure that if you make serious films, they can't be very feminine. Yeah, which is... Silly. It's silly. I feel like 
a lot of things are being reassessed. Like even now, like when it comes to rom coms or um, I guess films that were like quote unquote curly in the '90s or '80s, a lot of them are being reassessed because a lot of film, a lot of cinephiles aren't just watching serious things just to like stress out over or be challenged by. They're watching really well-made forms of escape or, uh, you know, something that they can relate to. And, you know, whether it's like from nostalgia first or whatever it is, a lot of these films are like making a comeback and making their rounds. So I feel like we're going to see a lot more and I think it's a really good thing. Yeah. Anyway, that's my pick. Jace, what about you? Are uh, What is your pink film? So I was trying to figure out which direction I wanted to go in. Cause we had mentioned it before. And one of the other color episodes that, um, so I think I had like mentioned Spring Breakers as a weekly recommendation, and you had mentioned that I could have used that for pink, but I decided not to. I'm going to go with the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, see, that's one of, of the course. ones that comes right to mind. That occurred to me while we were doing the podcast. Oh, why didn't I pick that? But I'm glad someone did. Yo, I consider that to be Wes Anderson's magnum opus. That film is just perfect. It might be. I consider it the closest thing possible to a perfect film. I think... In regards to the use of pink and just all the bright colors in general, it's the perfect juxtaposition to how dark that story is. Because it's it's not a happy film, but it, it does a good job of making you think it looks happy. Like a good concierge, it delivers what you want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It just it just it also he's like he is just one of those masters of color. Like his color palettes are always on point and just the precision in his framing makes it stand out even more. There's always like 10 million things happening in a static shot as opposed to someone doing a bunch of like movement and edits. There's just so much attention to detail. And I mean, even if there's scenes with multiple characters, they could just all be standing talking. It's like what, um, what was it? Uh, Ed Norton's character when he's like, kind of comes up from that, um, under the floorboards and he's pointing like, He's giving directions to everybody. There's so much happening there that like some people couldn't even pull off in multiple shots. But yeah, it's just uh yeah, just all the it's it's such a bright film. Honestly, I could have probably used it for white too, because there's a fair amount of white, but yeah, I don't know, just the pink always stands out and yeah, I don't know. It's that's definitely one of my favorite films of like the last several years. It's probably one of my favorite films ever. Also, it's like Oh, it's great. I don't think he'll ever top it. Also, Andreas mentioned that it's always hard to find purple films, and you could do that one too because Monsieur Gustave is goals. The, yeah. Oh yeah, because his, his fashion <laughs> is on Monsieur point. Gustave's goals. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. so mad that Ray finds to this day. I'm mad that he didn't get nominated for that film. While well, he was great, yeah, just excellent. And he didn't get nominated for the menu either, which I feel like is a bit of a burn. Uh, He's only he been nominated well. twice. What the heck? Yeah, I mean he he's been nominated. A handful of times, so like Schindler's Twice. List, uh, which I fit, I quite and the English patient. That's for. it. The, Eng- the English patient. I'm I'm Elaine Bettis when it comes to that film. Anyway, we're not gonna go down that road. Uh, since you brought a Grand Budapest Hotel, I'm not selecting this film, but it always reminds me, or vice versa. This film always reminds me of that Wes Anderson film as Paddington Two. When it comes to like the use of pink and like a jail kind of like um, environment, because when Paddington like shoves his hat in the washer and I think it turns all of the white uh, jailer uniforms pink. I just love it. It reminds me of Wes Anderson every time. That's not the film that I'm going with though. Uh, my pink film is uh, Paul Schrader's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, which isn't exclusively pink, but it's use of like neon pink or like cherry blossom pink at times is just some of the best I've ever seen in any film. Um, 
just riveting usage of of pig. I feel like uh, in general, uh, yeah, because it's it is split up into four chapters. It's uh, it's based on the Japanese writer uh, Yukio Mishima, who was also like a a political activist who. we don't know his story. I won't say more. Just read into him. Read some of his stuff. Uh, watch this film. It's a intense life, but like my goodness, it really makes for a good film. Um, I feel like the different stages of his life are like presented aesthetically differently each time, but specifically for the use of pink. Sometimes it's like a delicate, again, like cherry blossom pink in like a more beautiful aesthetic sort of way. Sometimes it's like a more radiating sort of pink, like to be loud and like depict with the other louder colors some of his uh more um invigorating years uh and and why that's important to him each chapter has like a a very different message as to what makes up mishima as a person um i don't want to say more than that but like the use of pink whether it's like salmon or bright or uh neutral there's quite a quite a bit of pink in this film it's not again it's not exclusively pink but I feel like there's enough that it sternly is what comes to mind when I think of pink films. So love it. Um, might be a smorgasbord pick for, for either of you in the, in the future. Cause I think this film is criminally underseen. Perfect. Yeah. Otherwise that's it for, I think all of our color, color episodes. Maybe we'll do Brown and gray one day down the road. Maybe not, not sure, but It'd be a pretty depressing episode. Yeah, we might have to like we might have to invent a third color just to, like you know spruce things up a bit or kind puce. of oh well what did that keep it depressing though <laughs> brown gray and puce it all goes together it's like the color of spring in Ontario oh uh, don't remind me that's that's around the corner um uh, it's it's like a like an eighties or nineties office space just like ugh, all these drab colors uh, but um. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll go for that. You you never know. It'll be uh, it, it'll be quite a quite a boring episode, I'm sure. But we might do it. You never know. Uh, and if we do, um, you can listen to it and find us and shout at us what colored films we were forgetting uh, at our socials. Right. So we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K Cut, and you're going to see a lot of annoying posts about the Academy Awards the next few weeks. So go check those out. And our smorgasbord this month is the M month. We've got M, Mirror, uh, Medicine for Melancholy, and The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. And yeah, you should check those out at home. Yeah. And uh, do so soon because I think our next episode is a smorgasbord one so you don't want to miss it you want to be caught up and uh, check out what uh what are um most likely fantastic films uh for those of us who haven't seen them we can't make that judgment yet but uh it'll, it'll be good stuff so uh otherwise we're gonna give you some more homework to do we're gonna recommend some random films which might be color based they might not be uh we could go in the same order weekly random recommendations Sure. Well, I was just browsing through the list of Oscar movies I've already seen because I wanted to promote one, and I realized there's one movie that actually could fit under pink, and that is the movie that shook the internet this week, My Year of Dicks, which you may have heard Riz Ahmed embarrassedly read. And despite the title, it's not really as salacious as it sounds. It's more sweet. It's about getting getting older, becoming an adult, and that kind of thing. And it really deserves its slot in the nominations. And I hope it wins, not just because someone has to read out the, those words. 
Well, they're going to have to anyway for the nominees, right? So, um, it, yeah, that film reminds me so much of like the attitude yet maturation coming of age of like Juno, let's say, or um, that a Daria MTV vibe to me, which was the era, but that it takes place in. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's also very appropriate as well. It, it it sounds hilarious to discuss, but it really is a good short. My year of dicks, I, I do recommend it as well. Uh, James, what about you? Actually, one that has a really good use, uh, I think, of color grading. Um, one that I don't think it's talked about much for its color, but one that I think the color lends heavily to the plot is uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Ooh, that that is a very well shot film. Yeah, especially like uh, the, I think there's that one great scene or a couple scenes where it's like there's this wall that's they had painted red and then just like, you know, kind of like the reds and yellows, a lot of the hotter tones, warmer tones are kind of amped up to show that the tension's building in the neighborhood. So I just think that's, that's a really good use of color right there. Yeah, no, I, uh, I can agree with that. Just love everything about that film. So, uh, since we're for mine, I don't think we're going to, uh, I don't think we're we're going to get around to like grays and browns and stuff. So I'll bring up the only film that comes to mind when it comes to gray. Uh, I'll do that here for the random recommendation is by Jean-Pierre Melville. It's a Le Samurai, which is uh, starring starring Alain Delon. It's uh, the grayest film that's not in grayscale that I've ever seen uh, off the top of my head. Um, one of the prime examples of neo-noir i think i've ever seen um just a very melancholy uh stoic sort of experience like uh you know whether it's what uh, alain delon is wearing or uh, the infrastructure or the interior design everything is just cement looking gray mechanical drab and i think for a neo-noir which you know, what is a noir film typically in the classic sense? It's, uh, you know, a film full of shadows in a, in a grayscale format. So white and black, it's a perfect blending of that sort of nihilistic environment in color. So let's samurai. It's, it's a classic. Otherwise that was it for the K cut. Thank you so much for listening to our entire color series. Uh, if you have not checked out our secondary or primary episodes, which I maybe should have reverse the order whatever uh you can check them out on our socials as we said or on any of your major podcast listening services and otherwise check it check out our cinematic sports board episode next week that was the k-cut we are not going into the alphabet. cut